I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I am with Jenny Rathbone, who is the Labour Assembly Member for Cardiff Central. Jenny, you're from London, aren't you? No, I'm from Liverpool. I didn't know that. How silly of me. Yeah, how very silly. <laughs> That's remarkably silly. So, you were brought up in Liverpool. Do you come from quite a well-heeled background? Um, yes, yeah, certainly, certainly I come from a middle-class, awkward family who have always um, stood up for things they believed in and uh, didn't care about making themselves unpopular in the process. And in your early years, you became a journalist? Yes, I, I did 20 years in television, current affairs. Before that, I ran a third world news agency. Where was that? It was in London. I was, I was head of the London Bureau, but we were both handling the best Middle East um, coverage during the Lebanese civil war and selling that to all the papers. And also, I was responsible for editing the, the Latin American coverage, which was obviously mainly in Spanish. How did you get into that then? I'd lived in uh, Mexico for a couple of years, and so it was my Latin American expertise that got me the job. Um, so that's where I sort of lent my, lent my journalism on the job, working doing? with Phil Kelly, who you may remember, who was involved with Phil Agee, um, who was a um, CIA agent. Oh, yes, and there was Edgy and Hosenborg, wasn't there? Was yes, the other guy. yeah, that's right. was the other guy. And they got um, banned from Britain, didn't they? Didn't they get kicked yes, out? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. What were you doing in Mexico then? Um, I was doing research on... Um, I had a British Council scholarship to do some research on the position of women in Mexico. So it was really interesting. Oh, right, OK. And yeah. what I'd done on? a degree and a first degree at Essex University in Latin American government. So I, I wanted to go and live in a Latin American country. Some of my colleagues went to Chile, so they came back. <laughs> were they at their time of the coup? Yeah, they were, yeah. So I, some of them came via Mexico uh, on their way back because it was really impossible to stay after the coup. And, of course, some years before, well, well about 15 years before all that, um, there had been an interesting departure from Mexico in the direction of Cuba, and with Fidel Castro on the ground. Indeed, boat. yeah. Well, Mexico has always had good relations with any country, and they received a lot of the refugees from the Second World War, who other people didn't want to take. Um, uh, and before that, of course, they... Um, they gave a home to Trotsky, but it didn't end well. It didn't end well, <laughs> did it? No. Um, but one thing that uh, always uh, struck me about Mexico was that the ruling party for many years was called, what is it, the Institutional the, Revolutionary the pre, Party? The uh, Partido Revolucionario Institucional. That's it. But it, it was a strange sort of Bonapartist system, because they did keep the lid on. There was the excesses we've seen in the last decade of the appalling... Uh, Overrunning of the whole economy by the the drugs industry, that was that was never allowed to happen when the pre had a handle on it. Clearly, they weren't a particularly democratic organisation, but they always had, had were mindful of their roots and the need to uh, not make things too bad for the poor. So you were steeped in the background of Latin American mm. politics, and you come back to Britain, and then you become this um, this journalist. Yeah, yeah. And you were actually working for World in Action, I think, weren't you? Yeah, subsequently I, I, I did a brief stint at the FT, and, um, and then I went off to Granada Television, which was an absolute privilege. The Bernstein brothers who ran Granada had a genuine enthusiasm for getting to the bottom of 
issues and uh, didn't care about spending large sums of money on combating things in the courts if they thought they had a just cause. So this was amazing. Give me an example of this. Well, for example, I was involved in something called the Steel Papers. A colleague of mine got hold of a huge quantity of uh, papers from British Steel which um, exposed the fact that everything they were saying in public was a load of nonsense. You know, explaining, you know, their their grand plan for closing, you know, most of the steel industry. The programme went out and then um, we were subpoenaed to hand over all the documents. And um, the Bernstein brothers, who were then in their 80s, they were well retired, but they said, no, no, we've got to fight this one. And they spent a quarter of a million pounds on defending the right of journalists to keep their sources secret. It would be great if there were proprietors who did that sort of thing these days. No, it would, wouldn't it, but um, sadly. <laughs> yeah. So then money programme, you were doing stuff on that, weren't you? Yeah, you were the I, I, after, well, after, after that, I, made, I went in about 1988, I made a, a three-part series on the international debt crisis, obviously a lot of which had happened in Latin America particularly, in places like Mexico, and then... Following that, I then went to um, the money programme, the BBC money programme. Um, so that was interesting too. But it became a bit stultifying. John Burt and his idea that you write the script before you even do any of the research was just not the way I was used to. And I had a very disappointing uh, time when I uh, did a, a programme about um, Guardian Royal Exchange and the way in which they had treated their customers, uh, some of whom had lost everything. And the editor was hysterical about a ship. Well, the stock price, the share price might go down. And I said, well, maybe. <laughs> and she said, we can't have that. <laughs> so she cut, you know, a lot of the material out in order to, you know, not have any sort of waves coming as a result of the programme, which was completely the opposite to the tradition I'd been brought up in so so this is really I suppose in a sense a bit of a symbolic thing so far as the the way in which the concept of shareholder value has now taken on a life of its own and is actually actually dominating the whole entire economic system yeah I mean which is uh, you know absolutely absurd that this is no way to run an economy and clearly far too much of our wealth is uh, concentrated in the city of London which whose interests dominate the way in which uh, we macro-manage our economy and, and to the detriment of most parts of Britain. And this whole concept of the financialization of capitalism has been very damaging. Totally. Um, because it's no longer a matter of um, people making things so much, although it is true to say that there are still, in Britain and more so in Wales a significant part of the population who are working in manufacturing industry, and yet they get very largely completely overlooked. And we're now supposed to worship at the god of financiers, aren't we, who are people who are just manipulating money without any kind of productive end, apart from making money for themselves. And we saw in 2008 just how fragile that system was. It's just money circulating to, to no purpose, to no productive purpose whatsoever. You might as well be betting on the 3.30 at Newmarket. There's, there's nothing more scientific to it than that. And we did see how, in fact, it could bring down the whole financial system. And nothing really has been done to stop that happening. 
you then left journalism, essentially, didn't you? What was, what was it that prompted you to leave journalism? Because you ended up working for a... What was it? A, a, I, I ran a short start. You ran a short start. Yeah, but, but in the, yeah. In, I decided I wanted to leave the BBC because I, I wasn't able to have any sort of political persona in current affairs television. They insisted that we were all politically neutral. Um, and I decided I, you know, I felt rather angry at that point about the way of the world and I decided that I needed to leave in order to be able to have some sort of um, political career so I I then that enabled me to become a counsellor and work-wise I did a lot of really interesting independent review panels for the NHS in London you know where things had gone badly wrong people had died Uh, so I was chairing these panels we brought in independent doctors to review the work of their colleagues and we were able to come to a view which in the main gave relatives, mainly relatives, occasionally the individual themselves, the answers that they'd been seeking that the NHS was being shy about coming forward with. Do you think that uh, there is still work to be done uh, on that kind of thing? On the health service? Well, yeah, in terms of... The fact that there are people who... Uh, there, there are still lots of complaints, aren't there, about individual cases. I mean, Anne Clude was uh, sounding off a few years ago, wasn't she, about the yeah. way in which things were functioning? Yeah, it, I think the system is probably a little bit more customer or patient-focused these days because NHS organisations know that they it's going to cost them a lot more if they fail to say sorry in a timely fashion. Obviously, independent review panels were not about financial compensation. That, that was one of the conditions, that you weren't able to pursue this matter uh, unless you agreed that this was not about money. Um, and most people, in my experience, they don't want compensation. They want somebody to say sorry and some sense that um, other people are going to not have to go through what they or their loved ones went through. Now... I sit on the Public Accounts Committee and I think, on the whole, health organisations are much uh, more aware of the need to be frank when things go wrong than they were uh, 20 years ago. But they aren't always as good at learning from, from when things go wrong. It is a hugely important tool for improving services if you embrace when things go wrong uh, and then use it to inform your practice uh, and ensure that you endeavour not to repeat the problem in the, in the future. Now, we've got the public service ombudsman, who obviously whose job it is to also pursue people on that front. I think local authorities are probably, on the whole, just a little bit ahead of uh, health bodies, but they, they aren't all the same. Is that something to do with the more democratic nature of I think yes I think the democratic nature of, of local authorities means that um, people who represent individuals will insist that people need to, to be given a proper explanation sure start what happened there then oh it was the most wonderful uh, period um, because I had a team of about 20 people and we were responsible for an area of about 8,000 children all under the age of five and so it was everybody who lived in this particular area. Which area was it? Uh, it was called Hillmarton, which you will never have heard of. But it was basically the area between Holloway Prison and, and Highbury and Islington Tube Station, uh, on that side of the, of the Holloway Road. Islington had very good early year services, had always, for some years, had very good early year services. So 
because of the levels of deprivation, there were at least, I think, six Sure Start programmes. So I was managing a, this one in this particular area, and ours was the only Sure Start that uh, was working in Holloway Prison because obviously their entitlement was for women who were pregnant or who had children under the age of five. And it was our job to ensure that we engage with everybody. That's one of the things we were tested on by the, uh, the Labour government. They, they needed to see statistics of the numbers of people we, we had engaged with in the previous month or the previous year. I think my political skills of going around door-knocking were very useful at ensuring that, we, that my team did do exactly that, go and knock on people's doors. And uh, if you talk to social workers, they'll tell you that... For many families, you, you need three or four visits before they, they realise that you are for real, that you are actually going to do something for them. Because some people have got an aversion to social workers, haven't they? Well, they have, because there hasn't been very effective social work going on. There's lots of good stuff going on, well as some not very good stuff as well. But I think the reason why people get into difficulties is generally because they've had very poor upbringings in their early life and this makes them unable to form appropriate relationships I mean a lot of children children under the age of 16 you know will have a baby because they think well so finally there'll be somebody who loves me but not realising that babies aren't like that they, they are demand led <laughs> and uh, if you're not adult enough to understand that the baby's not a doll it's a human being with needs then things can go very badly wrong to what extent would you see such people as victims of their family circumstances and to what extent would they be victims of capitalism? I think I, think I would stick with um, they are victims of their family circumstances. Dysfunctional families create dysfunctional families um, and that's well recognised. Carl Sargent did a lot of work on adverse childhood experiences and that's now something that you know, everybody talks about. Um, and you can see, I mean, if you, if you look at the prison population, you know, two-thirds of them will be illiterate, uh, you know, uh, particularly the female population. They will have had, all have had experiences of abuse, nearly all of them, uh, of one sort or another. And sometimes um, people who are gung-ho about free markets, etc., forget about the need for the state or its agencies to intervene in circumstances for the public good. I guess that you are very much of the view that an interventionist regulatory kind of system is absolutely important. Well, it's absolutely essential because if you have just one lot of people who have everything and another lot of people who have nothing, clearly um, that produces levels of inequality of well-being, attainment and everything else that is completely unacceptable. You know, we don't want to go back to the time of Dickens, do we? You know, it's one of the failings of the UK government and one of the tragedies of Mrs May, really, because she, she did set out when she was first elected talking about the need um, for, for the government to address um, the inequalities that existed in society. But then she's been completely... Um, had her hands tied by Brexit. Um, so, you know, that's all, all very tragic. But I, I, I don't, never really thought that a Conservative government would really take that on board in the way in which needs to be done, and a future Labour government will need to address the really um, grotesque levels of inequality we now have in the UK, you know, where young people who would like to settle down and have their own home 
and have that stability are simply unable to do so. If they're in private rented accommodation, they can be thrown out for no reason. Um, and if they don't have the bank of mum and dad to help them um, with a, a deposit, they're simply unable to afford to buy a place of their own. What brought you to Wales? Uh, <laughs> a combination of circumstances. I spent a lot of time in North Wales as a child because uh, coming from Liverpool, we, we used to go to North Wales practically every weekend. There was parliamentary selection came up in 2007. A friend of mine encouraged me to apply and I then was elected and to be their candidate and so that's where it all started. And you didn't get elected to Parliament, but you did. I didn't. I didn't get elected to Parliament in 2010, but then I was encouraged. Which constituency did you stand? Uh, Cardiff Central, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, which had always been held by the Lib Dems since uh, we lost it in 1997. Oh, that's the Assembly level. No, at Assembly level, Jenny Randerson won it in 1999, and nobody had been able to shift her. I mean, I, I don't think it was helped by the upheavals that occurred over. Uh, who was going to lead the Labour Party in Wales. That did not help the um, enthusiasm with which Labour Party members were fighting for uh, for winning the Assembly seats. And so what you did was you essentially, you embedded yourself in Cardiff Central. Yeah, yeah. And having been defeated at the 2010 general election, you got selected for the Assembly, assembly election, election in 2011. And, and this time I was successful by 38 votes, I think, as I recall. The first time round, yeah. Was, yeah. yeah, and then it was several hundred. Uh, yeah, it's now eight hundred plus. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So, what do you think it took to actually win the seat in the first place in twenty eleven? One of the keys to Cardiff Central is the very large ward of Clonedin and Pentwyn. It's called Pentwyn officially. Um, it's a huge um, housing estate. Basically, it's the largest housing estate in Wales. If you look at it, all as one. It was all built from the late 1960s to actually what is I would regard as 21st century design, which is the Radburn design, which ensures that children can go anywhere within the ward without ever meeting a car. In terms of uh, the, the way in which we need young people to be a lot more active, to uh, get around more, to, to not be dependent on a motor car, is obviously um, ideal uh, for the 21st century. Anyway, it's a, it's a housing estate that's on the edge of the constituency with all the challenges that come with being on the edge of a city and being quite isolated. A lot of people rarely come into the city centre because they can't afford the bus fare. So the battleground between you and the Liberal Democrat in 2011, was that estate? Well, it was, it was certainly one of the battlegrounds, but it wasn't the only battleground. Cardiff Central um, has a very large number of students, um, so depending on the mood of young people at any given time will be a huge determinant. I didn't exclusively focus on that one ward, but that was where I went to live and and did a lot of work, um, but then moved out from there to all the other um, parts of Cardiff Central. At one time, of course, before they went into coalition with the Conservatives, and perhaps particularly uh, since the uh, Iraq war, the Liberal Democrats, from an urban point of view, had put themselves forward as some kind of left-wing alternative to Labour, and perhaps that's why they'd won quite a few seats. Yeah, I I think they were very successful at that time in garnering the the student vote. Uh, It was one of the the platforms that um, enabled them to be successful in Cardiff Central. But it wasn't the only one. Jenny Randerson was Mm. very well embedded in... 
the King Coyd area where she lived and uh, I think still does. So she, she established her base quite early on there and, and moved on from there. But and there was no doubt that the Lib Dems had a, a story that, uh, that students grasped. Uh, I think the, the Iraq War obviously did a huge amount to um, discredit the Labour Party as a radical organisation and the, the Lib Dems were able to present themselves as, as more left-wing than Labour. Obviously, then Nick Clegg came along and the rest is history. And so they don't have that kind of cachet anymore, which no, makes it easier for not. you to beat them. But having said that, you, you beat them very narrowly the first time round. Oh, I, I, I absolutely, I beat them very narrowly the first time round. But it was also because there was no longer the incumbency factor of Jenny Randerson. She stood down from the seat at that point. What, when, you, when you decided to stand for the Assembly and got selected, mm. what was your view of it as an institution at that time? And what did you hope to achieve by joining it? Well, I've always had a great interest in health and education, and clearly these are devolved matters. Um, so this was a great opportunity to um, be able to have some influence over both those areas, which I feel very strongly about. I think that there's still an awful lot that needs to be done to, to get where I'd like us to be. But, you know, a lot, a lot of people are working on this, and I hope I contribute towards that. Obviously, my, my sure start background means that I, I really do understand what young children need, and we're some way off giving people, women in particular, the support they need to... At the, particularly at the very, uh, the very start of a child's life. It, it's really, really hard. People say, you know, having a baby doesn't come with instructions. And if people don't have um, family who are going to support them, somebody to make them food while they're feeding the baby, it's, it's really, really difficult. So we, we need, in my view, we still need to do a lot more, not just having more health visitors, which may, you know, may not be possible with the limited sums of money we have but have a, a team of healthcare assistants supervised by health visitors who who do the important things like ensuring that people are successfully breastfeeding if that's what they want to do and who understand the the way in which you you start to talk to your baby from day one now your background in short start also uh, stood you in good stead, I guess, when you became the chair of the Monitoring Committee of Structural Funds, mm-hmm. European Aid mm-hmm. for Wales. Did you enjoy doing that? Role? Yeah, no, that was it was um, quite daunting. It was the it was the biggest boardroom I've ever seen. You had to have your distance glasses on to see who was at the end of the table. It was fantastic working with a very large stakeholder group in order to endeavour to understand how well we were how successful we were in using the money that we got from Europe and hopefully learning from our successes as well as our uh, less successful ventures. Of course, it came to a bit of a sudden end, didn't it, because you were sacked by Carwin Jones, Mm -hmm. who was the first minister at the time, because of your opposition to the M4 Relief Road Black Route. Yeah, I I was shocked that we were going ahead and spending millions of pounds on something that hadn't been properly discussed, and, and in my view, and it's subsequently been seen, there's huge evidence that actually it would just make the problem worse. So don't spend £2 billion on something 
that's going to make the problem worse in the long run. Uh, we have to have much better public transport to get people not commuting into Cardiff and Newport by car. Were there attempts to shut you up before you made these views known? Uh, uh, no, because as soon as, as... I mean, I gave an interview and uh, that, that was published and that was that, you know. Did you think... So, that there was were... no discussion, you know. No. It was just out, you're out, you know. You felt badly done to at that time? No, it was just, just the rough and tumble of politics. It's, it, it, you know, but I, I didn't regret doing it. That's what I thought, that's what I believed. Um, to not have said it uh, would have been um, a betrayal of what I think and believe. I, you know, I don't think you always have to speak out on every matter, but it was a pretty huge sum of money um, that was being committed to something that I thought was, you know, hadn't been tested. There was no real evidence that this was going to be um, something that would deliver. But I think I think we definitely have to do something for the enabling people in Newport not to have these levels of uh, congestion around uh, their city. Um, and that the solution to that is undoubtedly ensuring that people who are travelling into our cities are able to do so on public transport. And then, subsequently, more recently, you got into trouble over some remarks that you made actually some time before they were put into the public domain. Mm. This all related to what has become known as the anti-Semitism row uh, within the Labour Party. You were talking, weren't you, about the, the perception that some Jewish people had. Yeah, I, I certainly contest any insinuation that I hate Jews. Uh, there's absolutely no evidence in my mind uh, of that. And when uh, occasionally people write to me in that vein, I say, no, no, I have never said that. But I, I did make some in, inappropriate remarks. Um, in particular, I said that um, Jewish people needed to be um, working harder for peace in the Middle East. And that is completely wrong, you know, and I accept that. And... You know, we all need to work for peace in the Middle East. That was a, a thoroughly inappropriate remark. But I, I think it's very hard to know, isn't it, why this has now become such a hotly contested area. I think you could, you, probably that there has always been a lot of anti-Semitism uh, within uh, our culture um, across Europe. The history of the Second World War which was obviously completely appalling for anybody who was Jewish, you know, tells us that just like the, um, the issues we now have with other people who want to, who are desperately seeking refuge in our country, is people aren't necessarily all that welcoming to people coming from other countries. So my great-aunt was very, very involved in trying to uh, rescue people from Europe um, who were threatened by Hitler. She had loads of run-ins with uh, people like Herbert Morrison, who was mindful of the anxieties that having too many people come in was going to create. But it, it was an incredible situation. Unless you had some sponsorship from some wealthy individual who would say, I'm going to be responsible for this child, you could not get anybody in. So we're all guilty, if you like. Uh, clearly, uh, the appeasers were absolutely guilty of, of trying to do deals with Hitler when clearly this was not somebody who was ever 
uh, going to be trusted to do deals with anybody. I understand why Jewish people with the history, the, the fairly recent history, of uh, the appallingness of the Holocaust are very sensitive to any um, comments that people make that might be deemed to be hostile to them. And we live in a very brittle society at the moment. We live in a real sort of existential crisis as a result of Brexit, which means different things to different people. And people voted in different ways uh, to leave for things they... They didn't like the, the, the world they were living in and they thought that leaving the European Union might make things better for them. In most cases, I don't think that's the case. But we can't ignore those that level of anger at the inequalities and the injustices uh, that are going on in this country. And we have a really urgent job to do to reach out to people and to rectify um, a lot of those injustices because unless we do we face a very very dangerous situation we've just recently had a situation where a number of Labour MPs have left the party one of the reasons they cited was this issue of anti-Semitism the other being their dislike of the party leadership stance on Brexit what is your view of what they've done well, I disagree with them. I think I understand that they had a particular view of how we should handle Brexit and they are insisting on the need for a second referendum. I'm not opposed to a second referendum, but I've yet to be convinced that a majority of people in the House of Commons are going to vote for a second referendum and it needs legislation in order to make it have any validity. On top of that, it's not at all certain that the outcome um, of a second referendum would be the one they seek. They've obviously felt that they wanted to leave the Labour Party. I'm sorry to see them go. I think that uh, John MacDonald is right in saying we all need to be listening a lot harder to each other. There's a, there's a danger that um, people take you know, fixed positions and that it doesn't lead to dialogue. You know, Democracy has to be about dialogue, and we have to be listening to actively listening to each other and uh, the opinions that may be different from ours. I had a really interesting conversation uh, recently with a man who voted Brexit who is so angry that he feels that just because he voted Brexit he's being um, described as, as racist. And he says, absolutely not. We have to respect why people didn't vote the same way as we did, but we have to understand the reasons why people take those views and if we want them to vote for the Labour Party we get to need to persuade them that the Labour Party is the organisation that's going to rectify the injustices that they feel. Most sensible people and most observers of the political scene in Britain and people from overseas looking at what has been going on at Westminster would see a political crisis of major proportions and they would see that the the government has acted in a completely shambolic way uh, and certainly there are grounds for believing that to a large extent Britain as a consequence of this has been seen uh, as something of an international laughing stock. Why in these circumstances isn't Labour 
streets ahead of the Conservatives in the opinion polls? Because I think they, they've been trying to um, keep everybody happy. <laughs> and that is difficult. That always dissatisfies lots of people. I think the Labour Party's already, always been a broad church, but an overwhelming number of the Labour Party members have voted to remain in, in Europe. I'm not sure that that is necessarily the case for people who traditionally vote Labour. They are different people um, on the whole. The numbers of people who join any party at all are quite limited. And there are a huge number of, of Labour seats, including um, in Wales, who voted to leave the European Union, many of them in areas which had benefited most from European funding. And I think that's to do with people's, A, feeling that they were poorer, not better off, that their children were not going to have the benefits that they had uh, experienced post-war, and that they didn't feel in charge of their destiny. So the, the European money was very good at doing really big things, like ensuring that we had broadband across Wales, uh, building big roads to connect people. The, the heads of the valleys road, very important. But it didn't really, in most cases, engage properly with what people in small communities wanted. There were one or two programmes like that, like the LEADER programme, uh, was very good at engaging with people at, at that micro level and saying, what is it that you would like? And those programmes were very successful on a very small scale. And I suppose one of the things I regret is that we didn't do more of saying, well, this worked well in this community, let's go and see if we can't introduce that into very similar communities. How do you see this matter being resolved? We just have to hope that there are enough people in the UK Parliament who aren't going to be so irresponsible that they would allow us to leave the European Union without a deal. This would be a, a just like suicide, really, for um, our communities, and the people who would suffer most would be those who have least. So we absolutely have to do that. If we left without any agreement, uh, the impact would be immediate and critical. I just hope that they come up with a solution to prevent that happening. With the benefit of hindsight, I can see how, you know, Joe Stevens, my colleague in Cardiff Central, voted against um, Article 50. And with the benefit of hindsight, I think that was the right thing to do because we voted to leave on a particular day in March, two and a half years ago, without any idea uh, what we actually wanted from the European Union, which is why the negotiations have been so agonised and agonising for the European Union is because they have no idea what the what br the British people want um, because Mrs May has gone in there tacking all the time to keep on board the most extreme elements of the Conservative Party rather than looking at what was the consensus within the main political parties, uh, what was the common agreement which would then enable us to negotiate an agreement with the European Union that would meet the wishes of most of the people. I think now there are those who are hoping, and I think Joe Stevens would probably be one of these, that if it goes down to the wire, as it may very well do, and if there were a choice between a no deal and a referendum, that MPs would 
or the majority of MPs would vote for a referendum. Can you see that happening? Well, hard to know. You'd have to ask Joe Stevens. I mean, I'm not, I'm not in the House of Commons, so I really can't say. But I can see that's a possibility. I think some journalists have described this as a game of chicken between, you know, who's going to blink first between Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May? Because whoever moves first has risks splitting their party. So which comes first, the party or the well-being of the, of the country? It should always be the latter, shouldn't it? it? It should always be the latter, of course. But I can see it's, it, it's really frightening to think that um, you might um, tear up all the good work that you've done in building up the party you think is going to be able to win power in order to be able to um, fulfil your manifesto commitments. Jenny Rathbone, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Thank you.